Time for swordplay. Alex, a California church is offering religious exemption letters for people who do not want to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, you handed out religious exemption letters where you're at? Of course, Nick. I'm handing out all kinds of papers that won't be accepted anywhere, like expired coupons to hometown buffet, Ooh. checks, remember those, arcade game tickets from the 90s, uh, continuous form printing paper, you know, the ones with the uh, perforated edge and the holes you had to tear off. Oh, yeah, hate those things. And also religious exemption letters. Is there anything else I can do not to help? Just let me know. All right. There we go. Zing. This is Swordplay, double-edged perspective on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, we're looking at the apocryphal Psalm 151. That's right. And this is our season four premiere. That's so right. So thank you, diligent audience for returning to another season of Swordplay. That's right. After we're give done, you our best. After we're done talking about Psalm 151, we're actually going to dive into uh, an audience question, I believe. Yeah, that's right. And we'll take so, a Q&A from the audience. That's right. Uh, we pitched that at the end of last season, and there were a few questions that came in. We're going to answer one on air today. And we thank you, diligent listener. Yeah, and these are good questions, too, so keep sending them in. We'll get to them. And also, how do you like the new music? That's uh, right. Ash Sculptures hat tip. <laughs> That's right. New music, new logo, new season. We're ready to go. So let's jump into the text, Nick. Psalm 151. What? That's right. Psalm 151, Alex. Um, my Bible only goes up. to 150. <laughs> Where can I read Psalm 151? Well, you can read it in your English translation of the Septuagint, or the NRSV, or any Eastern Orthodox Bible, or an English translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and if you are, look for 11QPS, that's the Great Psalm Scroll, or you can just listen to us, read it in a few minutes, since it's only seven verses long. Yeah, should also be noted that uh, there are different versions of Psalm 151 depending on where you read it. Uh, for example, the Hebrew version that's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is actually two Psalms, 151a, 151b, uh, whereas the Greek version found in the Septuagint is a single Psalm, uh, perhaps even a conflation of those two Hebrew Psalms. Uh, but we'll break that down as we get further into the episode. Uh, let's do a quick recap of a few things, Alex, a couple things here. Uh, what is the Septuagint? Yes, so the Septuagint, abbreviated with the letters LXX, broadly refers to all the different Greek translations of the Hebrew and Aramaic versions of the Old Testament. These translations took place as early as the 3rd century BC, and various copies were later used by the New Testament writers and early church fathers. The Septuagint is a valuable resource in biblical studies still today, giving us insight into the variations of scripture the earliest Christians would have encountered. I love the Septuagint. I think it's very valuable. That's my quick summary of it. Very good. What about uh, the Apocrypha? Uh, this Psalm 151 is an apocryphal work. What is the Apocrypha? Yeah, this is one of those confusing terms that gets used in different ways. So the word itself literally means hidden. Protestants use the term apocrypha for books in the Old Testament accepted by Catholics and Orthodox but absent from Protestant Bibles. 
And we've gone into the backstory behind that in other episodes, so you can see the archives. Uh, Catholics and Orthodox refer to these apocrypha books as deuterocanonical, meaning that they are canonical in their view, but were written second or later than the proto-canonical books of the Old Testament, meaning the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. So it's a chronological description. So the deuterocanon is thus second because it was mostly composed in the intertestamental period. To make matters even more confusing, though, Catholics do use the term apocrypha, but usually when referring to the Old Testament pseudepigraphical writings. And we did cover some Old Testament pseudepigrapha in Season 3. You can look up at Episode 5, The Apocalypse of Zephaniah. So there's a quick recap for the Septuagint and the Apocrypha for our listeners who maybe don't remember. Now, let's talk about the psalm itself, Psalm 151. What is in Psalm 151, Nick? It is written, Psalm 151 is, as an autobiographical poem presented as a victory hymn of King David, first as a shepherd chosen from among his brothers who are good-looking, towering figures. And then you have David writing as a warrior in battle against Goliath. So very brief, uh, as you mentioned, just uh, seven verses roughly. And so that's, that's essentially the whole content there of Psalm 151. Okay. And what about the author? Who wrote Psalm 151? We don't know. <laughs> there, the superscription that is found in uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, says it's a hallelujah of David. However, the superscription that's found in the Septuagint says that it is uh, written by David's hand, though it's outside the number, and we'll t- discuss what outside the number means in a bit. It, so you, you do have these superscriptions that claim to have been written, that this psalm was written by David's own hand. I believe it's reasonable to conclude, though, that it was not David. First, the substantial differences between the Hebrew texts and the Greek text reveal development, they reveal conflation, they reveal abridgment. The Hebrew text has more material. It's actually two psalms. Uh, The Greek text subtracts material. Uh, Samuel's name, for example, in uh, verse 4 of the Septuagint, which is verse 5 in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, edition, and it conflates the two psalms as a single psalm. The Greek text also includes that the psalm is from the hand of David. That's not present in the Hebrew. It just says, again, uh, a hallelujah of David. All of this demonstrates, I believe, that there were actually multiple authors that were involved in this uh, over a period of time. How long that was, we're not sure, uh, but we'll talk about date in a bit. That's what I found about author. Alex, what say you? Yeah, I have a little bit different take on it. So while I do acknowledge the editing problems you mentioned, and that does make our extant manuscripts a bit of a mess, but I don't believe the messiness dictates authorships. Uh, These are editing problems, not authorship problems. I think David really did write these verses as the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls reflects before verse 1 in the superscription. It says, A hallelujah of David, son of Jesse. You mentioned that. And then, of course, in the uh, Septuagint, it says, From the hand of David as well, regarding the part about victory over Goliath. But let's, as an example look at the canonical psalms when it comes to editorship uh, and let's compare the Hebrew and the Greek manuscripts 
the Hebrew of Psalm uh, 9 and Psalm 10, those are separate. But in the Greek, it's just one psalm, Psalm 9. This causes the Hebrew numbering of the psalms to be one number ahead of the Greek psalms until you get to Psalm 148, and then it lines back up again, because then you have the opposite problem. You have the Greek of Psalm 146 and 47 coming together as one psalm in the Hebrew, what we know simply as Psalm 147. Now, do we doubt Davidic authorship of Psalm 9 because of the various editing we see between the manuscripts? No, of course not. Do we doubt the legitimacy of Psalm 147 because of editing in the manuscripts? No, we don't. Should we just throw out an entire lineage then of text and treat one language as, ex as inspired and one as not? Say, only Greek, no Hebrew, only Hebrew, no Greek. No, we don't want to do that either because they're both good. I propose that we use all of our manuscripts and we use them to reinforce one another when building the most logical reconstruction of what would have most likely been the original text. And so it is with Psalm 151. We have a messy manuscript trail, uh, which you know not only applies to Psalm 151, but much of the other canon of scripture is a little messy sometimes in the in the manuscript trail. But if we use the Hebrew and Greek together, then we can get a complete and logical psalm. And so though not numbered in the 150, it nevertheless, in my view, was a legitimate psalm of David. Now let's talk about the date. So obviously, uh, you and I have two different trajectories we're going here. So on your trajectory, Nick, when do you think Psalm 151 was written? So looking at the date of the presence of Psalm 151, both A and B, the two psalms, actually, uh, as they're found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as De Silva says in his book, Introducing the Apocrypha, it necessitates a, day of comp a date of composition before 68 CE or 68 AD, I think is probably what we would say. But So De Silva actually argues that the style reflects a start date for composition sometime in the 500 BCs. And if you lean toward uh, Dead Sea Scroll scholars like uh, James Sanders, who's actually the guy who un unrolled the text for the first time and published his results in the 60s, then uh, you may see even some Hellenistic development in the way that David is presented there, uh, kind of combating uh, what the musical gods and how David is greater than all of them and all that. So uh, all that would suggest uh, a late date. Um, and so a, a date sometime in the 500s BC would assume a Hebrew base text perhaps reflected in the two Psalms that are preserved there at Qumran. And these Hebrew texts are then uh, redacted, conflated as a single Psalm, and that seems to be what is preserved in the Septuagint. Uh, so that's a bit about date from me. Alex, what say you? Okay, so the Hebrew we have of Psalm 151 from the Dead Sea Scrolls it does have a more fleshed out version of the psalm when you look at the Septuagint. However, is that because one of the Septuagint editors redacted the text? It might be, but not necessarily. The Greek copies that we have may have been copied from a different line of Hebrew text. We know this. We know that there are different lines of Hebrew text. They're not all coming from the same traditional line of manuscripts. So the difficult thing that every scholar has to do or attempt to do when doing an introduction to a book is reconstruct the history of manuscript transmission, which is something we simply can't know with certainty uh, regarding what happened in the past. 
but we know with varying degrees of ambiguity. So because of those varying degrees of, of ambiguity or certainty, it is worth doing, it's worth looking at, but it does depend on other presuppositions. So if I have the presupposition that David truly is the author of this psalm, then the psalm was written in the lifetime of King David. But then the manuscripts that we have, you see that the style might reflect a certain age of other writings. And so why would the style of our Dead Sea Scrolls reflect a date of the 500s BC, as some have suggested? Well, we know that as texts get copied through the ages, it's not uncommon that the vernacular would be updated to its most current audience. Uh, this happens a lot, especially with place names, where the text will get updated with the most current place name of a city, not its most ancient place name. And we do this, uh, we see this happening in the Old Testament text a lot, but we even do this today in our English translations. We don't change the place names, but we uh, do change the vernacular. I would say that the earliest copies we're looking at from the Dead Sea Scrolls likely date to the Second Temple era. But I take it that there was an original psalm penned by David centuries before our current extant earliest copies. And that position, by the way, is the necessary position for all of our Old Testament authors when we say that the guy who the book is named after wrote the book. So it's the necessary position on all those other canonical books. If we say Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, then we don't have Moses's copies. We have much, much later copies. And that's okay. That's the way it works. So that's my take on the date. So you have the date of the when it was penned and then the date of our earliest copies. And now we have the question of canonicity because your Bible doesn't have this psalm in it, Nick. My Bible doesn't have this psalm in it. Uh, People might tune into this episode and see the, the number Psalm 151 and think that there was a typographical error or that we're making stuff up. So Nick, why isn't Psalm 151 in the Bible? And do you think Psalm 151 maybe should be in the Bible? Yeah, and this, this probably is the uh, dividing line between our two positions and maybe gets to the heart of this. And this is, by the way, uh, the part of the episode where you're going to get fireworks, oh, diligent listener. <laughs> On God. We disagree. That's right, swordplay. Here we go. Uh, so the superscription for this psalm in the Septuagint says it is outside the number. Uh, that's the case in all three of the major Septuagint manuscripts. Uh, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus all read exothin to arithmu, and that's outside the number. That's uh, translating that phrase, outside the number. Outside the number of the 150 canonical psalms. That's the idea of that phrase, outside the number. It's giving us then a unanimous witness in the early church that this psalm was non-canonical. That's how it was viewed. And therefore, while certain groups have viewed Psalm 151, perhaps they viewed it as part of the canon, uh, and some do even today, uh, the Eastern Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, uh, the Syriac tradition. Um, it's clear, though, I'm persuaded, it was not canon. It, it was not viewed as canon, and that's a unanimous witness both of the early church and also of uh, the, the Jewish people as well. At best, it had liturgical significance, perhaps like our hymns in a songbook, or I even thought about um, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, 
how that will have uh, not only material from Scripture, but it also will have stuff that uh, guys came up with as well, prayers and that sort of thing. Uh, it was not, though, and it is not, Theonoustos, and I think that's the dividing line here, is, is Psalm 151 breathed out by God? Uh, to, to borrow the, the phrase that, uh, or the term that Paul coined uh, in the first century, is it given by God? And I do not believe it is. Uh, and therefore, it's not canonical because it's not Scripture. Uh, so the 150, the 150 Psalms that we do have, those are Theonoustos. Those are God-breathed. They're given by God. They're of divine origin. They're unlike any other poetic writings composed by p- poets throughout history. Psalm 151 is not of divine origin. It's not given by God. It is outside the number of the 150. Uh, the, the Jewish uh, people would have said that it did not make the hands unclean, and it was also not stored up in the temple or laid up in the temple. Uh, so thus, it is non-canonical. In addition, the uh, previously noted data concerning author and date I believe that shows that there was development of this poem by multiple authors during the intertestamental period, and that further disqualifies this psalm as canonical. Uh, Also, it contains unbiblical material, or at least material which contradicts the biblical witness, um, as it's found at least in the Hebrew version, found of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Verse 2 talks about how the witness, uh, the mountains do not witness to him, that is to God, nor do the hills proclaim him. Some insert the hymn there uh, uh, in the tree translation. Uh, so what do we have here? Do we have David, as it were, contradicting David in Psalm 19, wherein he recognizes the witness of the created order, uh, and that it declares the glory of God, that it proclaims his handiwork, pours forth speech, and reveals knowledge? No, I don't think so. And so all of this taken together, I believe, presents a, uh, an overwhelming and unanimous case against the canonicity of Psalm 151. Uh, from where I'm standing. It is not Theonoustos, not God-breathed, not given by God. So that's what I have to say. Alex, what say you? I am pulling my sword out of its sheath, sir, and I say on God. All right. Not so fast. (laughs) (laughs) So which superscription says outside the number? Not the Hebrew from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the oldest witnesses of the text. It is only the Greek that says outside the number, specifically Codex Vaticanus and Alexandrinus. I disagree that Sinaiticus says outside the number because there is a dissenting Greek manuscript called Codex Sinaiticus, and in its superscription it says the 151 Psalms of David. Additionally, scholars have noted that in 11 QPS, which is the numbering for the Psalms scroll in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says the column containing Psalms 151a and 151b is followed by a blank column. The blank leather clearly shows that the collected the collection found in 11 QPS actually ended with Psalm 151b. And so in the Dead Sea Scrolls, 151 belongs in the collection of the Psalms. So for the Dead Sea Scrolls, for Codex Sinaiticus, this psalm belongs in the canon. That's my vote. It should be in the Bible. Regarding David contradicting David, I'll leave those comments until we actually get to the text because I think that perhaps there is a misunderstanding of what the text is saying. But let's say for argument's sake, not conceding this point, but just for argument's sake, that we should fully accept the Greek manuscripts that say this psalm is outside the number. So Alexandrinus and Vaticanus. First, 
it would seem that this qualification is linked to just what verses 6 and 7 say, since only those verses deal with Goliath, and in that superscription, it's referring to David's victory over Goliath. So that corresponds to the title heading of those Greek manuscripts. And that little part corresponds to Psalm 151b in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So second, what does outside the number really mean? And this is kind of what it comes down to. It means that there is something special about the 150 Psalms. I acknowledge that. A group of carefully collected writings that are not in chronological order, by the way, and they're not exhaustive in what those poets composed either. But rather, those 150 were brought together as an edited whole. They were put in a specific order for a reason. And I think that reason was to teach some larger theological significance. And people have written lots of works about this, lots of commentary on this fact, this idea. And this is fine by me. That makes sense. So we have the 150. Then we have other psalms outside the 150, which then at most places them outside of the canonical Psalter, but not necessarily outside of the canonical scriptures. So that's the difference for me. Can we go back and, and talk about uh, Sinaiticus for a moment? Um, yes. You mentioned, so I, I went back and you can look, you can, uh, Codex Sinaiticus has its own website. You can look at the uh, various uh, folios. The actual, uh, they, they've taken photographs of uh, all of the pages. And it does have, in the superscription for Psalm 151, it does have outside the number. So when you talk about, uh, you, you mentioned the, the 151 Psalms of David. Are you talking about the, um, the subscript for uh, the Psalms, the Book of Psalms? Well, I pulled that from David De Silva in his introduction to the Apocrypha. So when he writes about Psalm 151, he says that Sinaiticus does call the collection of Psalms the 151 okay, the, Psalms the, of David. Right, the collection. Right. You know what, you know what uh, Codex Alexandrinus calls the collection? No, what's it call it? The 150 Psalms and one ascribed. Okay. And so I think I think taken together, the collective witness of these uh, the, the the Septuagint uh, these Septuagint versions, I think taken together, um, point to the fact that they acknowledge this 151st Psalm is outside the number. And I think that's why, while you may have the subscript in Sinaiticus, they're careful to note and agree with. Uh, the other Septuagint versions that we have, that this psalm is not part of the, the, the canon. So that's the difference between what you yeah. and I are saying is Sinaiticus is a dissenting voice in the fact that it may not consider 151 as part of the 150, but it's still a part of the 151 Psalms of David. It still belongs in the canonical scriptures, and if not maintained... in the canonical Psalter. But they've maintained it's outside the number. They they still have it. Still has that reading, and that's fine. And I and I said for argument's sake, I'd be even willing to give that to to you to the other side of so, the argument to say fine. It's outside of the number, but outside of the number, what I'm saying is outside of the canonical psalter, but not outside of the canonical scriptures, which is why it's still included as part of the 151 Psalms of David in that manuscript bundle. 
that's the difference. The other thing that I would point out is you mentioned that uh, you would you would argue that that outside the number is actually only four versus six and seven. Did I understand that correctly? That's what I think. Yeah, I think it's then why is it why is that phrase in the superscription before the entire psalm? Because that's just the way the editor put it. But if you look at the Hebrew as well, that superscription lines up more with the superscription above 151b. And so when those two psalms were put together by a Septuagint editor, the superscription above 151b made its way to the top above the entire psalm that they put together. But if you look at the superscription, it's referencing the Goliath battle. And that Goliath battle doesn't have any verses uh, uh, about it until 6 and 7, until the last two verses. Okay, and there, there there is no superscription before Psalm 151b, correct? In the in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh there is there is one. It's at the beginning of David's power after the prophet of God had anointed him. And then it goes into so that's the superscription above 151b. Is at the beginning of David's power after the prophet of God anointed him. That's actually the, the first verse of that Psalm 151b. But it's not it's not a part of the verse like it's a it's a heading that you see in many many psalms it's like it's not a description that's not but that's not the it's way not it's not a first person description but that's not the way it's written in um or translated in what this is the dead sea scrolls bible this is these are your boys what uh flint and all that right 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 but i'm saying don't look at the numbering from the modern translators look at the content the content says at the beginning of david's power after the prophet of god had anointed him that no, sounds I, like a superscription no that sounds no, like a okay. heading it's totally no okay all right very good and then you got first person after that which says then i saw a philistine uttering insults from the ranks of the enemy and so this happens a lot in the psalms in the canonical psalms Right. Sword play. Sword play. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's 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 get to the actual content of Psalm 151, shall we? And Alex, you've given us here a conflated reading of uh, Dead sea, the Dead Sea Scroll um, translation as well as the Septuagint. Um, is yeah. that correct? So I took, yeah, I took what was in the Septuagint, I took what was in the Dead Sea Scroll, and I put them together to make my own complete scribal version. So what I said earlier in the podcast about how we should use all of our manuscripts together to reinforce one another, to make, to reconstruct the most logical uh, uh, combination of what would have probably been more like the original, you here's what this would look like in my view. Take the Dead Sea Scrolls, take the uh, the Greek that we have, put them together, and here's what how it would read if I if I had an editing hand in on it. Here's how it would read. And I'm not changing the words. I'm just changing the um, which one I choose each verse. Am I choosing the Dead Sea Scrolls in this verse, or am I choosing the Septuagint in this verse? And uh, there's a few of them where I just I put both of them together because they go together. And so anyway, you want to hear it? Yeah, let's <laughs> let's go for it, man. Let's All right. So, a hallelujah of David, son of Jesse. I was smaller than my brothers and the youngest of the sons of my father when he made me shepherd of his flock and ruler over his kid goats. 
My hands made an instrument and my fingers a lyre, and so I offered glory to the Lord. I said in my mind, the mountains do not witness to him, nor do the hills proclaim. The trees have cherished my words and the flock my deeds. For who can announce and who can speak and who can recount my deeds? The Lord of all saw, the God of all. He heard and he listened. He sent his prophet Samuel to anoint me to make me great. He dispatched his messenger and raised me from the sheep of my father. He anointed me with the oil of his anointing. My brothers were handsome and big, but the Lord was not well pleased with them. Although they were tall of stature and handsome by their hair, the Lord God did not choose them, but he sent and fetched me from behind the flock and anointed me with holy oil, and he made me leader of his people and ruler over the children of his covenant. At the beginning of David's power after the prophet of God had anointed him, this psalm is written in his own hand by David and outside of the number when he fought in single combat against Goliath. Then I saw a Philistine uttering insults from the ranks of the enemy. I went out to a meeting against the foreigner, and he implicated curses upon me with his idols. But I, after drawing the sword from him, beheaded him and took away the reproach from the children of Israel. And there you have it. That's Psalm That's 151. It. In its entirety. So, let's talk a little bit about the content of the psalm. What do we have here? Let's see. Nick, why do you think Jesse, David's father, why do you think he put young David, smallest and youngest, out of all his sons, out to be alone, tending the sheep in the wilderness? Wasn't that dangerous? What do you think? Oh yeah, yeah. Shepherding was dangerous work, and and I know you'll speak to to the dangers of that in a moment. Um, and it was it was often left to the youngest in the family. Uh, nobody wanted to be a shepherd. It was despised work, which, by the way, makes um, Psalm twenty three all the more potent when it says that Yahweh is my shepherd. The work that nobody wants to do, the work that is despised. That is the very work that Yahweh himself does for his people. Uh, so that, that is why young David is the one who's out there, um, and, and it was certainly dangerous work. What do you think, Alex? Well, uh, I don't think this was normal for this kind of work to always be left to the youngest in the family. Um, even when you look back on the story of Joseph, who was put in charge by his father Jacob, that's kind of what that multicolored coat or coat with long sleeves really if you look at another translation that's what it kind of indicated is that he was put in charge by jacob much to the chagrin of the older other brothers right but even then he was not alone he was still with his other brothers now the dangers are not trivial right this isn't you could uh, get bit by a snake or scratch yourself on some thorny bushes or something like that David himself says that he had to fight bears and lions that would come for the flock. You get that in 1 Samuel 17, 34-37. So the precarious placement of David out in the dangerous valleys becomes even more suspect when the prophet of God par excellence, Samuel, comes to Bethlehem, demands to see the sons of Jesse, and David is left out of the call. Can you imagine a father doing that to one of, one of your sons, right? As a father, like, woof. I don't, why would I do that? Leaving him out of sight, out of mind like that. That's terrible. 
And this is why Jewish Midrash, uh, which is just like, you know, various Jewish speculation over the centuries, would hint here and there about something concerning David and perhaps some sort of questionable origin surrounding his birth. Ah, in iniquity did my mother conceive me, right? So picking up on the Jewish breadcrumb trail, I think David probably was seen as an illegitimate son, born of adultery, and kept outside of town for that very reason. But if that was the case, and again, I admit this is speculation, then God's anointing of David illustrates two important facts. Number one, David really was a legitimate son of Jesse, and God approves of him. That would be a huge moment of redemption in his life. And number two, David's messianic profile would then be expanded even more to parallel the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and the controversy surrounding his birth as well. So that's my take on why in the world was young David out in the middle of dangerous nowhere. So let's uh, talk about the, the verse I mentioned earlier, how there's unbiblical material in Psalm 151, or at least material that contradicts the biblical witness David, David, right, in quotes, contradicting truly David, uh, in Psalm 19. Um, so talk to us, I guess, about uh, how you understand that, uh, that second verse. Why was David concerned with having no witnesses to his worship? Okay. So, right, you referenced this earlier. This is David contradicting David, so therefore this is not a, a, a good psalm. It's, it's, it's contradictory to the canon. If you look at the first six verses of Psalm 151, David is completely shocked that God chose him to be king. Part of the shock comes from comparing himself to his brothers, but part of the shock comes from David's own isolation and loneliness. Out in the middle of dangerous countryside, David passed his time by making music for his God. But who heard his music? Did God even see him? Did God even hear him? It seems like only the sheep and the trees hear my music, and they certainly won't be telling God about my songs. But when Samuel anoints David, it answers the question to David's isolation. God did see me. He did hear my music. And the God of the universe likes what he heard. David was not saying that creation can't give glory to God, as we see in Psalm 19. He was saying that he feared God would not hear him or see him, and that nature would be inadequate to tell God about David. The only problem with that particular view is why does David then go from the first person to the third person here in I, I said verse two it's actually verse three in the Dead Sea Scrolls so re rephrase the question I'm not understanding yeah so this is an autobiographical poem by David right so it's all it's written in the first person I me and all that but then you have the transition you're saying that the mountains do not witness to him and this is apparently David's worship why does why the why the shift to a third person uh, here with him? No, I don't think that's David's third person. I think the mountains do not witness to him, Yahweh. In other words, the mountains, the hills, the trees, the flock—they are not going to tell Yahweh about David's songs. They're not going to tell Yahweh about David's deeds. So, and so, so my my original objection stands then. That, okay, that this is contradicting Psalm nineteen, where. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. It pours forth speech, reveals knowledge, and all that. Right. But that's okay. that's God's handiwork in creation. Like, it proclaims the creator God. It proclaims about God, about his glory. 
But it doesn't say anything in Psalm 19 that would contradict Psalm 151 because David is concerned about not nature proclaiming about God, but nature proclaiming to God about David. That's the difference. Okay, very good. All right. Next up. What do we have here? What? Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) I lost my place. All right. Okay, all right. So, Nick, David has an idea of what makes for a good king, or at least he used to have an idea. So, let's dwell on that for a second. What do you think makes for a good king? Yeah, so, uh, I guess we could start in the the law, right, Uh, with Moses. And God revealing through Moses what makes for a good king. He talks in Deuteronomy 17, uh, beginning in verse 14, and running through the end of the chapter, uh, what makes for a good king. And basically, it's a guy who's going to do right by the people, and he's not going to acquire many wives for himself. Um, He's not going to acquire many horses, not going to acquire excessive silver and gold and supposed to write a copy of the the book of the law as well um that's going to be submitted for a grade apparently to the levitical priest but um so uh his heart is not supposed to be lifted up he's supposed to fear god keep the law all that right so so there's there's your prototypical king there's the trajectory that's set now it's david's son solomon who further answers the question in Psalm 72 the whole psalm is about you know what what makes for a good king let me just highlight a few verses here um, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Here's here's the plea, the prayer uh, of Solomon, but also, I mean, this was what was saying by the people. So, God, you give the king justice. You give him not just any righteousness, your righteousness, uh, O God. Uh, may you judge the people with righteousness, your people with justice. There's this emphasis then on justice and on equity. Uh, and and he goes on here, defend the cause of the poor of the people. Verse four, give deliverance to the children of the needy, crush the oppressor. So he's gonna do he's gonna do good uh, biblical justice. All right, among the people, gonna fight the oppressor, fight for the emarginated. Right, that's the uh, the poor, uh, the 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 children of the needy as well. Mm, there's one more thing I wanted to highlight. It, it, uh, you get the same motif repeated in verse 13. He has pity on the weak and the needy, saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So you have uh, this testimony of both Moses and Solomon where the king's going to do right by the people because uh, he's going to be a guy who emphasizes and knows the law. Uh, but perhaps uh, related to that and through that, he's going to know the God who gave the law. He's going to know uh, the justice and the righteousness of God. Indeed, God himself will give him the justice and the righteousness to do right by all of the people, especially the little guy. He's going to watch out for him. So uh, that seems to be what makes for a good king. Uh, what do you think, Alex? You know, Looking at this psalm, this is what makes me think that David was probably a teenager because apparently he thinks a good king should definitely have good-looking hair, just like his brothers. <laughs> That's the funniest part about this psalm, really. He says, I can't believe God didn't pick the good-looking guys with the great hair. <laughs> it reminds yeah. me later of when David's son Absalom is said to have great big hair. 
David must have been like, all right, he got the good gene hair, just like his uncles. <laughs> <laughs> now, in all seriousness, there are two standout qualifications that David exhibited while all alone in the wilderness. First, his desire to make music for his God. Second, his desire to not lose one of his father's sheep, even if it meant facing down lions and bears. And those two sets of deeds are what God calls a man after my own heart and are worth much more in God's eyes than strength and experience and reputation. Hmm. So uh, last question we have uh, pertaining to Psalm 151, Alex, is uh, what's the connection between David's anointing and his subsequent slaying of Goliath. Well, at first glance, if you're reading through the book of Samuel, you would just think that this is simply how the story progresses. But there may have been a theological significance to why the Greek translators combined the Hebrew of Psalm 151a and Psalm 151b together as one psalm. And the first clue that this was intentional, uh, intentional editing and not a haphazard handling of the text, is the superscription at the beginning of David's power, emphasis mine on the word power, after the prophet of God had anointed him when he fought in single combat against Goliath. So there is in the editor's mind then a connection between the anointing and the slaying of the giant that goes beyond a mere chronological ordering of events. So I take this connection then to be a portrait of the Messiah to come, one who is the new David. So just like David was anointed with power by God through the prophet Samuel, so too was Jesus anointed, was anointed with power by the Holy Spirit at his baptism through the prophet John the Baptist. And just like David subsequently after his anointing went to defeat the evil giant Goliath in hostile territory, so too Jesus is driven out into the wilderness and does battle with the most evil agent in creation, the Satan. And just like David, Jesus was victorious, but even more so because he's the new David. And so I think there might have been an intention there, theologically, to combine those two psalms in that way. And that's all we have on the contents of Psalm 151. There it is. We promised you fireworks, folks. There you have it. You got it. That's what you pay for. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and now here's our... Question and answers are Q&A sent in from the audience. And this is actually a really good question. So, Nick, it comes from the book of Luke, specifically Luke 949. The uh, uh, audience member asks, how did that random guy have authority to cast out demons when it was only given to the 12, as in chapter 9, verse 1? How does that apply to us today, since many do claim to have that same kind of power take it away yeah, it is it is a good question um and so 949 in luke says john answered master we saw someone casting out demons in your name we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us but jesus said to him do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you so the, the first thing that stands out is john answered Right, So he's answering something that was said before that. So the context, you back up to 946, there was an argument that arose among the twelve as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And so that's what John answers then in response to that. And I think... 
there's a part of usually how this gets packaged is John is trying to justify himself and the other apostles in their argument. Maybe. I pers I'm persuaded that we know that John is the beloved disciple. Uh, he loved his Lord. And I think at the uh, rebuke of the Lord, John's heart was touched. And, and so in uh, contrition, he asks Jesus uh, this question, or at least poses this uh, problem to him in his mind. Now, one thing that we need to discuss is that we, we often assume that Luke writes chronologically, and I think this is a common assumption we make for all the gospel writers, but their presentation of the gospel is often not chronological, but it's, it's, it's grouped together and presented with different emphases. Uh, when it comes to chronology, one will notice differences in the placement of episodes in the Gospels with, uh, with parallel accounts. Uh, and, and so those differences are not errors, uh, but they are what uh, Carson and Moo, in their introduction to the New Testament, what they call chronological indifference. Uh, so, for example, Matthew groups together a bunch of miracles in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, and he sandwiches those miracles, those powerful uh, displays of the power of God, which are intended to be confirmatory of the word that is, is spoken and preached. Matthew sandwiches those miracles in 8 and 9 between substantial teaching from Jesus in chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and also chapter 10, uh, where Jesus has an extended teaching there. Chronological order then, is not as important as other emphases uh, for the gospel writers. So the gospels arrange their material topically. So as it pertains to this particular text here, Luke 9, verses 49 through 50, this may be an incident from after the commission of the 70 or 72, depending upon the manuscript, uh, the 70 disciples, 72 disciples, uh, in Luke 10. And Luke uh, grabs hold of that later in order to uh, further elucidate principles communicated in that section. And here he takes this from later on in the ministry of Christ and plugs it in here in what is for us chapter 9 in order to, again, communicate and elucidate certain principles in this section of his narrative. Even if this is chronological, assuming it is, we know that Jesus was himself a successful exorcist. Luke has highlighted the success of Jesus's ministry in this realm earlier in chapter 4, verses 31 through 37, also in 41 of that same chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 26 and following, also chapter 9, just right before this incident, verses 37 through 43. So it seems reasonable that even before the commissioning, again, assuming chronological order, but it seems reasonable that even before the commissioning of the 7072, there would have been someone who had attempted to do the same thing in his name, in Jesus's name. But again, I, I fall for the, the former. I, I think this is uh, arranged topically rather than chronologically. Well, let's deal with uh, the, the question of contemporary relevance. Um, many assume that demonic powers do not operate today. Or if they do, they operate in a very diminished way. I, I, there's some truth to this. The, the demonic powers are not operating, operating in the exact same way that they did in the first century. And I think that's because they don't have to. Their methods are, are more subtle. They're more sinister. But that doesn't mean that they do not operate at all. They, they still oppress. They still harass. They still afflict. And they even... All right, here we go. Let's push the boundaries. I think they even possess at uh, at times. Uh, 
Whoa. Uh, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's <laughs> sometimes it is legitimately a mental illness or, or something physical. But other times, once you've ruled out all the all the powers of modern medicine and science, what's left but some kind of demonic influence? So then, what about modern day exorcists, uh, especially in in the in relation to this particular passage, uh, where Jesus says, "Look, if they're uh, if they're not uh, against you, they're for you." Well, I don't think that this is uh, you know just a, a blanket statement from Jesus here, uh, and I don't think that just because someone claims to be an exorcist and even perhaps uses the name of Jesus to do their work, that they should just be accepted without reservation. Even in the early church, not all exorcists were equal. How about the seven sons of Sceva uh, in uh, Acts chapter 19? They may not have been part of the church, that's fine, but they were still operating contemporary to the early church. They demonstrate that the name of Jesus is no magical charm, and those who use it falsely, they'll be exposed as frauds. They'll be embarrassed even. Uh, go back and read Acts 19, verses 13 through 16 uh, to get a very vivid example of this. Those who use the name of Jesus in this kind of fashion, I believe Jesus would say, they're actually against you. I don't know them. They scatter rather than gather and their exposure will be used by God to bring about fear in those who hear, and Jesus' name will be extolled. That's what happened in Acts 19, verse 17. So there's more I could say. I think, though, this is sufficient uh, in, in dealing with uh, not only what is going on there in Luke chapter 9, but uh, also what do we carry across the bridge today in terms of principles? So it's a very good question, uh, Alex, you want to toss anything in the mix here? No, you're doing a great job. Keep going. <laughs> I can. I, I can spin out for a little bit. Uh, I guess we would talk context for a moment. Um, as I mentioned, verses 46 to 48, the, the disciples, they are arguing amongst themselves about who's the greatest. And so Jesus provides that object lesson for his disciples. He pulls that child into their midst. He instructs his followers concerning true greatness. The least is greatest. Um, and, and then John, again, he presents his case. Why John, right? Usually it's Peter, right? Usually it's uh, uh, Peter who gets to, has foot and mouth syndrome and, and all that. Why John? Well, he, with the others, I think, they, they may have seen, uh, John may have seen his position as an exclusive one, an exclusive privilege just for the elite. Uh, and so his emphasis is he's not with us, right? That's, that's the statement, the phrase he uses there. But others, again, as I pointed out, they've suggested that he may have been embarrassed. He, he may have had a softer heart than maybe Peter. Uh, he realizes he's been reprimanded from Jesus, from his Lord, uh, the one he loves. And so he's attempting to uh, maybe divert attention to someone else, uh, maybe a veiled attempt to change the subject. It's what my kids do, right? They, they often go, well, he, yeah, but he, and I get to tell them, look, you don't get to justify your bad behavior by pointing to someone else's bad behavior. Uh, that may be what's going on here, but it, it may be that, again, the disciple whom Jesus loved is conscience-stricken over his master's disapproval. And now he's inquiring as to whether they've acted appropriately toward this exorcist. And so John answered. He responded to Jesus's teaching, wanting more information. And so Jesus gives teaching uh, uh, to his disciples. There's emphasis here about the name of Christ. Uh, by the way, the name uh, in my name, that's just that's what Jesus had just mentioned uh, in verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name, 
so now John draws attention to one casting out demons in your name here in verse 49. So the, the proximity between these phrases, I believe, shows that they're, they're parallel. They're used in a positive sense for being genuine followers of Jesus. And so I think that's what we're dealing with here with this guy who's not against you. He's for you. He's a seems to be a genuine disciple. Uh, and so, okay, what about this exorcist then? Who is he? And simply, we're not told. Uh, was he of the same group as the seven sons of Sceva? It seems highly unlikely. I mean, the way Luke presents them, he's the one who writes Acts. He presents the seven sons as, as, uh, in a negative fashion. Uh, and yet this exorcist here seems to be presented in a positive fashion. He's for you. And so it seems unlikely that he was of the same group as, as those exorcists who would have been condemned by the Lord, right? We cast out demons in your name, Matthew 7, yes, verse 22. And so it seems likely this man, he was a believer in Jesus' name. He, but he is not with us, Jesus. He's not with the 12. Uh, and so apparently they had imposed some kind of ban, or at least attempted to impose, tried to prohibit this exorcist from casting out demons that the 12 did. Why? There may have been different reasons behind this. But since it is John who speaks up, assuming he is conscience-stricken, he may have been motivated by a misguided love for Jesus that uh, it caused him to attempt to stop this man. Yes, sometimes our love for Jesus can cause us to do things which are not uh, Christ-like. They're not in the spirit of Christ. And so the, the imperfect tense here that's used here, we tried to stop him. Uh, that indicates the twelve had tried again and again to get this man to stop, and yet he persisted in exorcism for Jesus' name, or in Jesus' name. So there's a lot going on here, uh, a great text, great question, and I appreciate it uh, from our audience member. Well, Nick, I think you well upholstered that subject. <laughs> <laughs> so just yeah. just a summary, so I, so I hear you right. Uh, yeah. This man who the 12 are complaining about uh, or re recapping, you know, that they tried to stop him. He's a legitimate follower of Jesus Christ. Is that your position? So it seems like it. It seems like it. Okay. I think that makes sense. And so in verse one, where it says Jesus gave this power to the 12, is it safe to say then that we can't say that he gave this power only to the 12, but we're just focusing on the 12 in that passage for a reason? Well, and, and at least until, yeah, chapter uh, chapter 10 and verse 1, because then you have the, it does seem you do have a transition to after this. And if we want to, again, put that chronologically, I, I think I've worked through that uh, earlier. But, um, yeah. I'd, so this other guy it, could have been one of the 70? Is that what you're saying? He could have been. Okay. Uh, he could have been, let's see here. Um, I was even thinking about this as I was talking. I don't know if this is... Uh, going too far but remember the so i i mentioned back in chapter 8 verse 26 there was the guy uh who was uh, had a legion of demons cast out of him right w what if it was that guy because we don't know we don't know who it was what if it was him and he he wanted to go with jesus but he, you know jesus sent him off on his own mission what if it was him and they're like hey you need to stop it off because you're not with us right oh one know. of the people jesus sent somewhere else right yeah yeah you know so, what it re reminds me of reminds me of the apostle paul and how he's not one of the 12. And so that brought question to his apostleship and authority at some times. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously God confirmed his apostleship and authority through the signs that he worked through Paul. But he was sending Paul on a different mission in a different place for a different reason. The 12, especially Peter, were sent to the, to the Jews and Paul sent to the Gentiles. 
maybe we have something like that going on. Grant, you know, granting yeah. that this is, you know, a guy who's maybe not with them, but still of Jesus sent somewhere else. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So he's a legitimate follower of Jesus. Maybe one of the 70 who got the powers. Maybe not one of the 70. Maybe there's somebody special that Jesus sent on a different mission. Bottom line, at the end of the day, he's still a follower of Jesus. He's still a legitimate disciple. And the power he has is using is legitimately from God, for God, and for his kingdom. So don't hinder him. He's doing good stuff. He's, he's knocking out the demons. Don't, don't, uh, don't hinder, them, hinder him from that. <laughs> so, okay. Cool. Well, I think that's the end of the show, Nick. Season premiere. Yeah, we do have, though, a review. Uh, someone reviewed the podcast in iTunes, I believe. Oh yeah, we uh, want to give a shout out to uh, Real Peep, Real Peep. He uh, back in April said this podcast is flat out awesome! Triple exclamation point! Nice. Nick and Alex do an amazing job of presenting the Bible in a way that appeals to anyone looking for a greater depth of understanding. Well, thank you very much, Real Peep, and you are yep. a Real Peep, Real Peep of mine now. That's and right. I appreciate Thanks. that, Real Peep of the show, <laughs> and. Uh, why don't you tell our audience, Nick, what they can do to help the show? Yeah, we're actually so we're in iTunes, but uh, uh, now we have expanded our platforms, and we are also in Spotify, Amazon Music. That's right. And and we'll, there was one more. I think there's Google Podcast. Okay, Google Podcasts. So uh, we're out there streaming in different places. Go out there to your particular. Um, if, if hopefully it's one of those four, <laughs> but uh, go grab the podcast there uh, and download the episodes. Take it with you. Uh, you can leave a review and look. If you leave not just the the five star review because that's the expected number of stars to give us, um, <laughs> uh, but after you leave your 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 stars, uh, if you would write something out, we'll read it here on air. And uh, we love our fans. We're grateful to God for each one of you guys uh, who listen and. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll 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 read it on air. That's right. Um, yeah, go ahead. And if you leave a review in iTunes, because iTunes is the biggest podcast platform, and so like all the other podcast apps usually pull from the index that iTunes has. Uh, if you leave a review in iTunes, that's the most helpful, and because it is, we are so excited about our new logo and the new season of Swordplay that you. If you write a review in iTunes, we'll be entered into a raffle at the end of each month for free swordplay swagger. That's right. Mm. We want you to flex the new logo with some swordplay gear. So keep an eye on future announcements regarding the different prizes that we'd like to give away to our fans. Swag, and Nick, if, stuff we all get. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Everyone loves free stuff, especially cool-looking <laughs> free stuff. Okay, Nick, what can the audience do if they have a question? Yeah, they can uh, email us. You can email your question in to Alex. That's right. What's the, what's Sword the email play, address? Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. If you, have, uh, if you want to text it in, you can text it in to area code 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-24-SWORD. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Otherwise, I'd give you the numbers. But <laughs> It'll be in the description. It's in the podcast description. <laughs> 
uh, you can you can text those in. And we've been getting we've we've received a uh, a question via text, and we've received questions via email, and that's awesome. And like I said, we've an- we answered one on air. We'll continue to do this as they come in. That's right. Well, thanks for engaging with the show. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for coming to Sword Play, your double-edged perspective on Scripture. We'll see you next time.